everyone, welcome back to Let's Talk with me and David, and today we are going to be talking about The Man with the Golden Gun from 1974, the fourth and final film directed by Guy Hamilton in the James Bond franchise. Came out one year in 1974 after Roger Moore's first ever James Bond film in 1973 with Live and Let Die. David, what did you think of this one? I feel as if this was a big drop-off from Living That Dang, to be perfectly honest. I struggled with this one. I, I had a hard time myself, man. I, I don't know what... like This was like a big 180 from the last movie. I, and it's the same team. I don't understand what happened. And this time they were trying to lean into the martial arts films. But it's, it's just a cheesy, over-the-top mess, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I feel as if they were kind of running out of ideas. Um... When I put this movie on again to watch it, and I, and I took a look to see how long was this on for, and I had an idea, it was two hours gone, and it just feels as if they got to a certain point in the movie where they were trying to stretch it out for two hours, rather than maybe just make a good film as in make a 90-minute film would have maybe done this. Would have made more sense, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also found out today, I'd say I was doing a bit of research, so this is the uh, first time in a long time that a Bond film was released back-to-back, so you had Living That Band 73, and apparently the Man with the Gun Gun here came out in December 1974. So it kind of dawned on me, was it to do with being rushed? Was production rushed on, on this movie? And maybe that's what it was. I feel like that's something that had a part in it. Again, they gave this movie $7 million, and it actually made lo- way less than Live and Let Die, about $40 million less. It ended up making only $97 million in comparison. But again, it had a small budget. They only seemed to allocate $7 million to these movies. And then they just, yeah, they just kind of had like a production where they would rush it and rush it. Let's get like, let's do another one, get it out. This was the last one when they did that, actually, because I think there's a three-year gap between this and the next one. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, The Spy Love Me from 1977. Yeah. So it may have been a case of taking a breather, taking a step back, maybe seeing where they went wrong as such, because I, I feel as if living that die got them right back on track again after Honor Majesties and after Damage Off Forever. And this kind of like just puts it back in that same sphere as Damage Off Forever for me. Yeah, I, I, again, yeah, I agree. It's just they just made a lot of like poor decisions, and it's a shame because I actually really like Christopher Lee in this movie. I think that he does a great job in his performance of the man with the golden gun. Is he supposed to be playing a Spanish guy with that based on that last name? Because he sounds very British in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Scarbaga. Um, well, I actually heard that. So uh, the notes here. This was based on. Flanning's last ever novel. Oh yeah, and came out Flanning post died. Yeah, in between writing it. Yeah, and and he never. They were saying that he may have not had maybe um, a final draft before it was actually published. The character was actually called in the book Pistol Scaramanga. Ah. So he was based kind of like a cowboy type of guy. I, I don't know, maybe spaghetti, maybe spaghetti westerns. Maybe that's what you're about to yeah, because I, I was looking it up, and I was like, you know, that last name just doesn't seem to fit it. And then the whole movie takes place in Asian countries, and from what I would understand, the book takes place in the Caribbean, but they didn't want to go back there yeah. since they already had done two in the Caribbean, so they moved everything to locations in, uh, you know, I think, where did they go? Like, China, Tokyo, I we see the uh, Queen Elizabeth, I think, or something like that. Oh, yeah, the ship, yeah. Yeah, which is like a. I can't remember what the name of it was. I wrote it down, but apparently, like these are like real locations and stuff that they went and filmed at, and like it was all impressive the locations they chose to go to. I think it all fit in pretty well, but it's just like the decisions they made 
you know, as far as like the MacGuffin in this movie with the solar thing that controls power. Like I just solar, would, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, they, like solar plexus, that's not right. Yeah, I, I just know where you could just focus the energy, and now he's gonna sell it off to the highest bidder, and it's like your typical, you know, convoluted spy plot. And then throw in like a bunch of like crazy side characters in there. That all of that combined with the funhouse stuff. What do you think of the funhouse stuff and the that uh, we bookmark uh, bookend the film with at the beginning and end? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, is that I, I actually really like that scene in, at the start of the movie, and I actually really like the the final scene where he has Rabon has kind of like the standoff with Scaramanga. And the funny thing is, is that this is another Bond movie. It starts without Bond in the prologue. Yeah, it's a fake wax Bond in there where it throws him off because I guess like they're trying to illustrate like that he's his opposite basically, Christopher Lee. He sees them as equals him and Bond. Like that's the guy he wants to get. Well, do you know what it actually reminded me of? Only only longer. The prologue to From Russia with Love. Yeah, you know what? You're right. It is very similar to that prologue. And I found it very similar. I said, so the scene with From Russia with Love, it's showing your red Grant, Stop and Bond. And Pi's gonna kill Bond. And it's the same with this movie. It's showing you Scaramanga stalking the gangster. Yeah. But this is what he's gonna do to Bond. Because he because he's got the Bond wax uh, model and he shoots his fingers off, and that's ultimately his target. But did you recognize the gangster? No, I didn't recognize who the actor was. Who is that? He's the same guy in Damon's Art Forever who says the Bond, I didn't know there was a poo down there. Oh really? That's the same guy? the exact same guy but i don't know if it's supposed to be the same character yeah i didn't really know what his job was supposed to be in this until i actually looked it up he's just supposed to be just a regular gangster i was like is he supposed to be somebody more important than that and then i looked yeah. and he wasn't because if you notice like when m later is talking to uh 007 he's like oh this guy killed 002 he didn't have the same luck and it's just like a passing comment i'm like i wonder why they didn't show us killing him 002 in that scenario yeah it's, instead of just a random gangster yeah like you would think like since he killed 002 one of the double o's like i feel like that would be a big deal yeah. especially in previous Bond movies and future Bond movies, it is a big deal to have a double O die, you know? Yeah, do you know, funny you should say that. There is a, a Bond movie, I think, is an octopusy where it starts, opens up with, I think, double O8 being killed. I think actually... And then, obviously, to give Bond, I think, the, the assignment to find out what happened. I think it's Goldeneye where 00s, because you haven't seen the Pierce Bronson ones, but 006, I think, is uh, Sean Bean's character in that movie. And he, it opens with right, him. Okay. It opens with him also being killed, so it's very similar. They've used it. Right, yeah, so they do actually go back and start doing things like that. Yeah, they like set up the movie like, cause, and then obviously, I and mean, when they get to Daniel Craig ones, they really lean into like the double O's, or maybe they just didn't treat them the same as like 007. I, I don't know. Like Double O Seven's like the golden guy, I guess. Maybe he's just he is the best, and that's why we get to see him. Yeah, well, I would say so. I think that's that's what it is. Double O Seven's the best out of out of them all. You know, that's why he's the most famous. That's why it was all people say, "Oh, James Bond," you know. Yeah, everybody knows who he is. Whereas the rest are just basically numbers. He's got a name for his number as well. I mean, maybe he like they view him as more, even though that's I guess the highest they can go. But actually, one thing I wanted to bring up that's really funny: it's early in the movie when they send the 007 bullet to M, and he brings it to his attention, and he's like, "Why would anyone want to kill me?" And then the way M responds with, "I don't know," like it just gives him a list of the many reasons why somebody would want to kill him. I was like, "That's perfect self-aware meta humor." I loved it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It could even just be uh, an angry husband of some woman that he's kind of. Uh, Took advantage of. Yeah, like there would be plenty of reasons why somebody would want to kill him. Like, is it, he's not self-aware yeah. enough to know. 
I, I think at this stage, even Miss Money Penny would want him dead. Yeah, she's always he's. He, how long has he left her on the hook, like just in case? <laughs> exactly, uh, and I, I think that would make an interesting twist in a Bond movie that Money Penny was behind it the whole time. Could you blame her? Like, I wouldn't blame her one bit. But like, you've like, I can see her having like an emotional breakdown. Like, I've left myself for you all these years, and you've I've watched you just sleep with random chick after random chick. I, I, I wouldn't blame her at all. <laughs> no, I don't. No, wouldn't. And the funny thing is, is that I, in this movie, when he's in there, like wrote this down when he was in, and he's speaking to him, and he comes out and he asks about, uh, is it double? Did you say it was double two six? It was killed, wasn't it? Uh, double double two. two. Thought it was two. It makes no because he said six about the other one. Yeah, um, she has all this information. She she knows more than Bond. I'm sitting thinking, how does she know all this? She's yeah. only the secretary. That's it. Like unless she's peeking in the files he gives her or something to put away. Because like yeah, she does have a lot of information. She's probably taking notes of the meetings, but why is she disclosing this? Even if it is to, to one of the agents, because without authorization. Yeah, I was actually I didn't even really think about that, but yeah, she really for a secretary, she does have a lot of information. She should be made the next time. Maybe I I agree. I mean, hell, in this movie, M's starting to look a little old. So is Q. Actually, they brought him back. I was like, oh man, like because when you watch them so fast, you see them all aging so quick. <laughs> even though it's yeah. like you know. But the funny thing is, you said about you said about uh, Q. I think he he's. He goes on for another 20 years. Yeah, he lasted all the way up until either the, I think, the second to last Pierce Bronson movie. And the only reason he bowed out is because he passed away. So, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Are you still be doing it? He probably would if he could. He, he did it right to the very end. I, I had the last one when M asked Bond about what does he know about uh, Scaramanga. And, and Bond just rains off <laughs> all the information. Like he's a bloody Wikipedia. Wikipedia. I, I know, he just knew this off the top of his head. And I think he says at the very end, like, uh, did I miss anything? Like, it's like, okay, yeah, I guess you know who this guy is. <laughs> like a simple yes. Did you find Moore's voice to be a bit more harsh? Yeah, I thought Moore was a little bit, uh, played the role a little bit deeper, I felt like, in this one. Um, I, I felt like that as well. I agree with you. Yeah, I felt as if his, his accent was a wee bit more kind of refined a wee bit more harsh a wee bit more kind of he was a bit more careful the way he was saying things i don't know if, if it was just me but that's what i found watching these kind of one week to the next that's what i found about his performance yeah it is strange when you watch him like there was a year in between filming so like we were watching him a week after week but like yeah it's a whole year that goes by so i'm sure that he was like working on refining his character a little bit um, you know, maybe yeah. he looked at the script and was like, maybe I have to make this change because there is just so many changes from the last film to this film, just in tone. It, it, so yeah. I, I'm sure that like he adjusted on the fly, but again, I can't understand what, why some of the decisions in this movie were made because it's Guy Hamilton again. And he, this is his fourth Bond film. So I don't understand. Maybe the producers had something to do with it, but even the writers have all worked on previous Bond films. So I'm, I'm really just not sure exactly what happened that the tone of the movie just went so silly? Well, the funny thing is, is that they, I think the writers that wrote this wrote Diamonds Are Forever. I'm not 100% sure. I, I know what you're saying. I agree with you 100%. I, I don't know why they went this direction again. The only thing I can think of, John, is that they've, they've started to run out of ideas. 
Um, as far as I'm aware, like The Mom of the Golden Gun is a, is a short book. Maybe there wasn't enough there to draw it out into a feature film. So we're down this road of just silliness. Uh, it just feels underdeveloped to me. The, the, the plot is half decent, but apart from Scaramanga wants to kill Bond, and Bond has to stop, stop him before he kills him, um, what else is there to say? And then they brought in this subplot um, halfway into the movie about the, the other device. I can't even remember the name of it anymore, the solar thing or whatever. Yeah, I so, still don't understand what that is. It's something that you place in a solar thing that you shoot, and then it's able to focus the solar energy. That's why at the very end they have the cloud because it's not getting its solar energy to power this laser. But without that piece, the laser doesn't work, I guess. <laughs> it's a really weird MacGuffin. <laughs> It is, and then when I was doing a bit of research today, the, do you remember when he actually goes to Scaramanga's girlfriend? I can't even remember what's her name again. Do you know her name? Uh, she's not Mrs. The Goodnight. She's not Mrs. Goodnight, right? That's the other girl. Andrea Anders is her character's name. Andrea Anders. So yeah. Bond uh, goes to her, and he just sneaks in their hotel where she's having a shower. Yeah. And she, for some reason, is in the shower with a gun. Yeah, she comes out of the and shower with the gun. This, this is, <laughs> yeah, it's a really good one later. And when she comes out, Bond's starting there and he says, a water pistol. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and actually, is that the same girl from later? I can't remember. I get. I was getting these two mixed up, Mrs. Goodnight and her, uh, later in the movie. It's like, oh, I didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> yeah, that's the same girl. And funny enough, um, before, before going to what I was going to say about the solar thing, um, that girl, Maude Adams, she actually appears in another two Bond movies. Really? Future Bond movies. Hmm. Yeah, I think she has a cameo in Moonraker. I think it's just a cameo. Uh, but she then becomes one of the Bond girls in Octopussy. Same actress. Ah, okay. I was going to say, these are the ones I'm the least familiar with, though, the Roger Moore ones. So, like, it's even though I've seen a lot of them, or I've seen them all, but, like, I, I'm, like, kind of, like, unwrapping a new gift again because... I don't really remember them too well. Yeah, listen, I didn't know any of this until I rewatched the Blur ones about four years ago. And then I was kind of researching it. And I didn't even notice it when I was watching them. It was just when I was like afterwards like, researching the Bond movies and wanting to learn more about them. And there was other like real big Bond fans were pointing out like, oh, this is Maude Adams. And she was in Man with the Golden Gun. And she comes back in Octopussy and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, yeah but, but actually, if, if I hadn't pointed that out, you probably wouldn't even notice no, I, I wouldn't. De I definitely didn't. And I'm, now I'm going to keep an eye out for her in all the future movies. Yeah, that, that, that's actually awesome. And I, yeah, one thing again, yeah, Roger Moore, was he was banging out one-liners again. And did you also notice in this movie that uh, his regular pistol came back? I wrote that down in my notes. <laughs> so. Yeah, from the very start. And that, that's kind of like the whole kind of thing. is like you're Walter PPK against his mom made Golden Gun. It's, they make a big deal out of that. So I wonder that they bring that back by popular demand, the fact that he didn't have it in Living That Day, um, they were sitting thinking she would bring that back. It's very much a Bond gun, like that's his gun. Like we, we talked about it in the last review, how the Magnum that he had, it just seemed, I actually really liked it, but I, I get why people would miss it. Yeah. Like he made the Walter PPK famous, and then obviously that's his gun, yeah. and now we're going against Christopher Lee and his golden gun. Now, they do bring up that his golden gun can only hold one bullet though, so he's gotta be pretty confident in himself. Only you're saying about Bond's gun there. I, I'm near certain that in Doctor No, or was it one of the novels? 
the first ever novel. He did, made him in Casino Royale. He didn't have a other PPK. He had a different weapon. And somebody actually wrote Ian Fleming and said to him, loved the book, Bond wouldn't have this type of gun, he would have this type of gun. And then he started putting it in the novel then. Ah, I wonder if it was like somebody who works like, you know, in the government agency works like maybe in MI6 as like, you know, this is what they actually standard issued gun and like this is what he would have. That would actually be very fascinating. Yeah, you know, I can't even remember exactly remember the story. Um, you know, what type of gun it was, what I mean, you know what I mean? But that's, I'm just you saying about having the gun that he made it famous and your sermon. I think it's the novel. I think it's Casino Royale. It was the first world novel and it's a different gun in that book. And somebody read it and wrote to Ian Fleming and said, Ian, for a novel, but he wouldn't have this gun, he would have this gun. And in the next novel, that's when Fleming started putting in the water PPK and obviously that then went into the movies. Um, but here, what was I saying there about when Bond was with Maud Adams and then he slaps her about and um, threatens to break her arm and then obviously he just has to sleep with her as well and have a few glasses of wine, um, as you do. Yeah, why um, wouldn't you? But he, he, yeah, what? I said, why wouldn't you if you're Bond, you know? <laughs> sure, you may as well. Yeah. And, um, but he beats out of her, um, where Scarmang is going to be next. And, He's waiting for him, and there's another guy gets shot. Yeah, that guy, like, you would think he could have easily killed Bond, but he killed that other guy behind him, and I felt like that guy was somebody that, like, they kind of just wiped him on the rug after he gets killed. Like, he wasn't important. <laughs> that was the guy that Bond was investigating to do with a shorties and fuel. He was on another assignment, and that's what M was saying to him at the start of the movie. Come off this assignment and do this other assignment, and, um... But, but I, I didn't even realize that when watching the movie. And, and I'm sitting there thinking, how much is that as a coincidence that the guy he was investigating previously to do with um, a shortage in fuel was in that position at that exact same time that he was there? And I think this all ties into this soda, this other MacGuffin. Yeah. That's oh. why he was killed. Huh. I did that. To, wow. I didn't even realize that. I just thought it was weird because that was the uh, the other cop kidnapped was taking him back to M and uh, what's it called? M and Q later. And I'm like, they just kind of that guy just died and they kind of just like let it go like it was nothing. But he was an important death, actually. Like it, that was an important part of the story because of who he killed. And I was like, they kind of just glossed over that like it wasn't serious at all. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I didn't even catch on when I was watching it myself. It was just that I was doing research. I was like, oh, that's who that guy was. So he did. He did so in a sense that Scarmanga did mean to kill him. But of course, like as you say, he only had one bullet. He could have killed Bond and maybe killed the other guy another time. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it was all about. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely strange. But I was like, because I knew it had to be on purpose to kill that guy because we're setting up, you know, Scalamonger to be this guy who never misses. So why would he miss in that sense? Like he doesn't miss. So why would he miss? So I'm glad that it yeah. was. That was who he was there to kill. That's who he was hired to kill. You know, he's got a very high quote, yeah. $1 million to hire him, and he doesn't care who you are. You know, that's what he's doing. He's never go He never misses. He somehow stayed hidden that nobody's ever even seen his face, which is impressive for a hitman. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, for a $1 million, you would expect him to be hitting his targets, and you wouldn't expect him to be missing for a $1 million. 
Exactly. And I like how, like, later, you know, his defining trait is his uh, third nipple, and Bond decides to put a third nipple on, and, like, he thinks that he's got one on the guy whose name is High Fat. He thinks he's got one over on him. Little does he know that uh, Salamanga's sitting there with his real third nipple. You know, just that's where he's operating yeah. out of. And then, of course, he betrays him, too. He's, he's already there, and he goes into the pool, he sees a, a naked uh, woman in the pool, and he says, uh, Miss, and she says, Chewy me. And Bond says, uh, really? (laughs) (laughs) It's just so ridiculous. So, here, what did you think of Bond? I was going to ask you, snapping Maud Adams about, but did you feel as if that was kind of out of character for Moore's Bond now that we've seen him in Live and Not Die? Yes, that doesn't feel like the... Roger Moore's Bond compared to Sean Connery's Bond... As weird as it might sound, he seems a little bit more respectful of women compared to, like, yes, he still does the regular stuff, but, like, Sean Connery just has, like, this, like, mean streak in him where he was, like, he would get mad easier. Whereas Roger Moore seems like, you know, he takes everything kind of, like, tongue-in-cheek with a joke with it. Like, he's not going to be that guy who's going to hit a woman. It just doesn't feel like something that's in his character. Or at least the way he portrays it. It's a good scene, but it is kind of a wee bit, I don't know, I don't want to say shocking, but I mean, how far he goes. But I don't know whether or not it's because his own life is under threat. Maybe that's why, directly under threat. And maybe that's why he gets so kind of uh, physical with her, um, very you know, very strong with her. From my memory, I don't think he ever treats any a woman like that again. In, in the Bond, and his Bond movies going forward, I don't think he does. Apart from maybe getting in a fight with like Grace Jones or something, but that's about it. Yeah, I mean, if he's got to actually fight a woman and she's willing to fight back, that's a different story. But he's not just going to out and out hit him anymore. Not like Sean Connery was doing to get some info. Speaking of like some weird stuff in this movie, uh, there was some transitions. One transition, we transitioned right into a woman's ass. Like we just literally go from one scene and it's a whole ass on our screen. I don't know if you noticed that. <laughs> um, I, I don't I don't think I picked up. Well, I'm sure I noticed it, but I didn't write it down in the notes. Yeah, I wrote that down because I was like, wow, because they zoomed out from it. And then literally in the next scene, when we finally get Bond and a couple people taking out an entire dojo of uh, people, he grabs a sumo wrestler's ass, too. <laughs> and that's a manoush, because that's just really strange. Yeah. I don't get it. So he's being, he's being brought up by the sumo wrestler being really cursed. Yeah. He's nearly passed out. You know, he's over his shoulder. He's nearly passed out. And he goes down and he grabs his bum cheeks first. Like he's having a group. Yeah, he grabs them. Before he decides to grab the nappy. (laughs) Yeah, and then that's how he gets out of it. I guess, you know, he's desperate. But I was like, wow. And they zoom in on his hands on his ass. I'm like, well, okay, I got it. I didn't need you to go that far in. (laughs) And then when he gets out of it, he's knocked out by Lee Nicknick. Yeah, which again, it's really ridiculous that they named that guy Knickknack. <laughs> what did you think of Knickknack? Um, you know, it's funny is like you know it could be seen as a little bit offensive because he's making fun. They're making fun of little people throughout the movie, but I actually like him. Like he's very loyal, and I I, I found him to be a little bit like you know he had some funny scenes. Uh, you know, it's just the way that obviously that they're portraying little people back then is might be seen, especially like I assume that this is where Mini Me is based off of, right? Oh, 100%. It yeah. definitely is. And um, I don't have one going says them. I've never killed a dwarf before. Yep. But there's always a first thing. <laughs> and he's like, oh, Monsieur Bond. <laughs> yeah, that was another thing. His accent it, didn't seem to fit his look. <laughs> no, I just found him actually. Like, 
no harm to the actor. The actor done a great job. Do you know what I mean? Um, he done what he was asked to do. He's a very sta- standout out, um, henchman because of his size. You know, he stands out and everybody's going to remember him. But after a while, for me, he just became really annoying. Especially since they had to shoe him on, shoehorn him into the very last scene, which we've seen them do in a lot of Bond movies, where like the henchman comes back at the very end for like just one last scare. But like I thought we were over and done with him. But then they, you know, of course they had to make one more joke about him. And then Bond comes out with a suitcase and he's throwing the bottles. <laughs> and I know it reminded me of what's the best hand job. Um, the scene in Gremlins where the um, mother goes into the kitchen. And the gremlins are in there, and she's making the cookies. She's made the cookies, Christmas yep. cookies, and they're eating all the cookies. But they start throwing Delf, uh, Billy's mother, and she lifts the, the tray. Yep. And, and it just reminded me of that. He, he just reminded me of like, one of those three gremlins throwing the stuff at Bond, and he comes in with a suitcase and just gathers him up in the suitcase. I know, he just like squeezes him in there. <laughs> He just squeezes him in the suit, and then, yeah. and then he comes back downstairs after, and the girl's like, you didn't, and he's like, of course I did. <laughs> yeah, and I just laugh at, like, when, when he comes down from the ceiling, apart from the fact there's glass everywhere, you, your feet would be cut to shreds, right? Yeah. You couldn't get back in that bed with a hoover in the whole face. He's down, and he's looking under the chair, and he comes out from behind him, and pushes him, and it's like, what am I after a mouse or something? I'm not calling the man a mouse, but do you know what I'm saying? It's like you're looking for something that's just... It's just ridiculous. It is ridiculous. But if we're going to talk ridiculous, we have to talk about the most ridiculous in this scene in this movie. And that was the car chase scene and bringing out, uh, whatever, Officer Pepper from the last movie, which I didn't remember at all. So I was like, are they serious (laughs) when I saw him pop up? (laughs) J.W. Pepper. Yeah. The thing is, John, before we get to that scene, there's even an even more ridiculous scene just before that. Nick Knack knocks out Bond. He's going to kill him. The, the guy that hired Scar, worker with Scaramanger, has been hired Scaramanger, comes out and says, this is my home. You know, take him to school. Yeah, high fat. Oh, you're take talking him to school? Take him to school. Oh, yes. This scene is absolutely yeah. ridiculous. You're right. <laughs> and he wakes up in a karate school, in a karate outfit, the three women around him, drinking tea. Definitely heaven. Yep. And they've got every opportunity to kill Bond, but I, I don't get this. What is this about? Where is this going? I don't understand why he's here, why they didn't kill him. That's just your classic Bond, like, you know, I could easily kill you, but I'm going to put you in this situation where I know you're not going to get out of it, but you absolutely are. Because I think this is the school where they train all the assassins. So it's a whole dojo of, I guess, these trained assassins, and he's able to take them all out. This is where the martial arts film inspiration clearly came from. It's like, okay, Bruce Lee movies... So they're going to have these martial arts scenes, but somehow Bond is not just the best spy in the world, but he's also the best martial artist in the entire world. Right down, but like you said, they put him in the karate uniform and everything, so that means somebody dressed him in that. (laughs) When he was unconscious? Yeah. He dressed him in that outfit, and then he's just sitting drinking tea. Like, like, like nothing's going on. Like, if, like if somebody knocked me out and I woke up and like a karate, sh- I'd be going, "What the hell? Where am I? What's going on?" I'd have and questions. Just kind of like sitting there drinking tea. Yeah, then, I'd have a lot of questions about what happened since I got knocked out. Like, I'm not just going to wake up calmly <laughs> like this. It's just not happening. <laughs> and how much time has been by? You know, yeah. Is it uh, four hours later? Is it the next morning? Is it a week? 
<laughs> and then he somehow beats all of them with just the help of uh, what's his name's nieces, uh, those two girls who would just happen to be in the car yeah. early. He's like, oh, I got to drive them. And so those two are apparently great at martial arts too. So the four of them are able to like take everybody out. Yeah, well, the thing is, is that he, he kind of um, cheap shots the first martial art guy. He puts his head down, he kicks him, which is far enough. But the next guy comes in and starts beating him up. Bond gets the batter of him and decides to jump out a window. But as soon as he jumps out the window, that cop is there with his two nieces. At the exact same moment, he jumps out the window. And he's like, oh, we... He said, Bond says, how did you know the family here? And he says, we know that uh, the villain, we know that he, he actually has a, a karate screwed in here. But they just so happen to be passing. But the thing is that when the, the when he... I actually did like the part where he does say to the nieces, his nieces, the girls, stand back and the girls walk forward and start beating uh, the bad guys up. But the thing is, is that they all jump in the car and leave Bond behind. They were, they were going to the rescue, but they left them behind. I, I don't know. There was That was just one of those like poor decisions. I feel like this is one of those scenes that you're talking about that they probably added for filler. You probably didn't yeah. really need to do that because you just put him in a situation where he eventually gets out of it and ends up at the exact same point he would have anyway, but they probably just wanted like, you know, like, hey, this is like, I feel like this is exactly like we did black exploitation for 1973. You know what else is big right now in 1974? Martial arts films. Let's throw a martial arts scene in here just so that we can, you know, yeah. try and take some of that audience and take them for ours. Like that yeah. feels definitely like something a producer would do. And that leads to the chase that, that you were talking about there. So what did you think of WJ Pepper coming back? Or J.W. Pepper? I guess that's just complete fan service for people who loved him and Live and Let Die, but he's just a bumbling idiot again. But I love that he's like all game to help out Bond this time. But all that aside, the, the, the car jumping scene and then putting the whistle noise in there while they do it is absolutely insane. I cannot believe they actually added that sound effect in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I know. I don't know how to even do it either, but I'm just like, it's like one of those things where you're like, Ooh. <laughs> yeah, and then it's not only that, it's J.W. Pepper's in the car. <laughs> and he's like, uh, he sends the bond says something like, you're not going to jump over that, boy. And the bond says, I sure am, boy. <laughs> yeah, he does. And he jumps, makes this jump, makes the, the sound. And then and he's in the back, it throws him in the back, and he's in the back rolling about like a paddler. And I'm just sitting watching this going, what, what is going on in this movie? It is all cumulates in the Corgan in the barn, Bond and Pepper, going to the barn and then the police show up Pepper thinks he's all oh, and look this spy now he's he's working with Bond now you know what I mean yep. and he says to show his badge to the police he says, this is my department boy and all this and when the car comes out it's got it's like it's like a half plane it's like turned into a plane and it, fly, it starts flying and this is the part of the movie where I'm just totally like it's, it's just going downhill here I mean what is happening yeah, it's cringeworthy, but Yeah, I I agree completely. I didn't understand that at all. Where it was just basically a regular car with now plane wings on it, and it just takes off no problem. Like it has no issue at all. Like it's 2023 now. I I don't think we have this this technology to even do something like that where we just can attach <laughs> wings to a regular car and let it just fly. And you know he's not scared at all. He's like ah, I've done this before. <laughs> 
there's things like that in this movie that I think that didn't need to be there, and it was just kind of like as you said about the producers saying like saying we need to, or even the writers said we need to have this in it to kind of try and woo the audience. Somebody need to have a chase sequence like we did Living That Guy, and as you say, why don't we bring back J.W. Pepper because the audience kind of like them for comic relief and. And I just feel as if this film here, if they had have added it out 25 minutes of this movie, maybe a wee bit more tighter, it could be up there with living that bag. Because it still is kind of like a small story, but it's a wee bit more of globe chatting going on, there's a wee bit more locations, a wee bit more exotic. But if they had have maybe, instead of Bond, going back and getting knocked out and ending up in the karate, school and then having the chase and then that car flying with the wings if they had have maybe done it in a way that Maud Adams would steal the, the solar thing and then just cut to the scene where she's dead and then he, he picks it up and gives it to her and then she's kidnapped just normally kidnapped in a car you know he drove off in a car and he was able to find out Scarbank's location and then he just flies to the location they had to just took all that, that all that rubbish out all that nonsense I feel as if we would have had a better film. I think we would have had a better, more cohesive film than that. I 100% agree. That definitely would have actually made it make a little bit more sense because you're right. There are certain pieces in here where if they would have just done a better job editing, like I feel like this is almost like, I know you haven't seen um, it yet, but like uh, Thor Ragnarok to Thor Love and Thunder, like Thor Ragnarok had mm -hmm. a lot of comedy in it. But it was still a good movie. But it, they added comedy elements. And then in Thor Love and Thunder, they basically made a full-blown comedy. And everyone agrees that like that movie is like a big step back in comparison. I feel like that's kind of like what happened yeah. with here. Is like they took like the comedic elements that were in the last movie, but they decided to like double down on them and feel like that's what people really wanted to see. And I'm I'm like I don't think you understand. Like adding a little bit of comedy is good, but you don't need to make a full-fledged. Yeah. Bond comedy like this almost feels like this almost feels like a spoof of itself of a Bond movie <laughs> Austin Powers before Austin Powers exactly <laughs> like, it's like we gotta hit these tropes but we're gonna hit them in the silliest way possible Do you know it actually feels like this is Roger Moore's Damon's Art Forever and it's his second film yeah and I know as we go on there's other films that get actually bottom out more than the man with the golden gun but when I watch those later films I'm gonna get to them um, I will defend some of the later films more than I'll defend this. I mean, I can't defend it. I mean, I don't think it's a terrible watch. I mean, it's it's a well-made film. It's a well-put-together film. And it's not like Paul or Moore's phoning it in. He's doing a good job. Everybody, I think, is doing a good job. It's just, like, I go back to trying to make sense of the direction that they went for this movie compared to living that guy. And the only thing I can think of is that it was rushed a bit. They just tried to make it a bit, as you say, a bit more comedic than Living That Day. Even though there was comedic elements in Living That Day, they just went through kind of, um, it's almost like you say, spoof. And, and, this, and this one here with some of the elements of it. Yeah, I just think that they just kind of leaned into certain elements that they didn't need to lean into. And you easily could have cut some stuff to make it more coherent story because there is at like one thing I just love about this movie is Christopher Lee. I think Christopher Lee is one of those actors that's you know very underrated. He's just always he's got a certain oh, char he's got a certain charm to him when he talks that I just I love yeah. the way he delivers dialogue and like he in this movie is actually a pretty scary assassin. He doesn't really do anything yeah. too silly. I mean, you could say maybe like the Funhouse stuff is silly, but that's him like. Like, he wants, like, that's him, like, entertaining himself. It's like, I'm going to 
do it my yeah. way. And I actually do appreciate it about and I, I actually like the set design like you too of like the actual funhouse stuff. I like that stuff. Yeah. I'm actually laughing here as well because I'm thinking about the, the first scene in the funhouse when he shoots the gangster with the steps kind of flattened down to a slide and he slides down it. Yeah. <laughs> and he shoots him, do you remember? And his wee white shoes, he's not even worn any socks and all. No, we got to go down the slide. <laughs> He slates down, remember he slates down? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's got one shot. He's one shot. Yeah. Here's a, here's a wee bit of uh, information for you. I don't know if you know this. Do you know that Christopher Lee uh, was Ian Fleming's cousin? No, I didn't know that at all. That That's crazy. Is that why he did the movie? I, uh, I didn't know that. P- possibly. Uh, I don't know if that's why, but uh, <laughs> I do know that they... I actually wanted um a veteran dinner. Jack Palance was originally written for. Oh, I love Jack Palance, but and I can see that actually. But Jack Palance, uh, you know, he's played similar vill. I mean, he, that's kind of very similar to the role he would play in Batman. Actually, speaking of, <laughs> but I was actually thinking there. What do you say to Nick Nick? You are my number one guy. You are my number one guy. Yeah, exactly. Nick <laughs> <laughs> Nick is. It would work. I think it would work. <laughs> Jack Palance would be very good as a Bond film. Yeah, I mean, he Jack Palance, the way just his voice is so, the way he's so uniquely sound, he just sounds like a villain. He doesn't sound like anyone who could ever be a hero. Like, Christopher Lee, too, does kind of sound like a villain, too. They have that just menacing, yeah, natural but, look. Yeah, yeah, Christopher, Christopher Lee's brilliant and everything. He's in it. Yeah, he's, he plays a really good Bond villain as well. Um, but, but the only thing is that I don't understand, I, I know it's for dramatic effect, when they kill Maude Adams, Bond shows up, and then Christopher Lee comes down and sits beside comes down and sits beside him, and, sh- and so he's he's just showed Bond what he looks like. And I found that a bit odd. Why would you do that? Um, you've killed Maud Adams, and then and then he says, "I'm looking for the solar device, whatever it's called." And Christopher Lee says, "I've already looked at her bag. You won't find it there." But it's just lying on the ground, so he didn't exactly look very well, did he? No, he didn't even put any effort in at all. He just wanted to play it off like he did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and then he started telling about his life. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and also, like, the way Christopher Lee gets the power is by killing that guy, High Fat. And I'm like, is that how it works? Is that it? You just got to kill the top guy, and now you get to take over his entire business and everything? You just inherit it just by killing the guy? Like, I feel like there's some kind of uh, will and testament that would have sponge all that. But I guess I, I have a misunderstanding how these corporations are run. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, that, I think that's just the way it works in, in movie, 70s, uh, 80s movies in those days. Yeah. If you kill the guys in charge, now you're in charge. Everybody's just going to be totally loyal to you and do what you say. Yeah, that's it. I mean, if I feel like that there'd be a lot more assassinations if that's how the rules of the world worked. <laughs> kill the guy in charge and now you get his business. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. There'll be no challenge to that at all. Uh, but I have to say, though, I say good night. Right, she was in the movie and um, as another Bond girl, who again um, really nice to look at, look at in her bikini. But aside from that, was there really a need for her to be in this film? What, what did she bring to it apart from getting kidnapped? It's funny on her Wikipedia page. On the Wikipedia page for this, it literally just says that she was playing into the character trope of a dumb blonde. So that's all her character was basically laid out to be was just a dumb blonde, and she plays that well because she, right, like you said, no reason for her to be in here other than eye candy. Because a lot of the time she spends in that bikini, and they make sure that they let us know that that she's in that bikini. There's plenty of shots of her in the bikini in this movie. There's a lot of sexual shots. That's one thing, like I said, about like the transition into the girl's ass. They were definitely leaning into, like, you know, the 
the sexualization of women in the 1970s for sure at this time. Yeah, I've uh, heard people say it's kind of like, like the, the kung fu thing and then the black exploitation in the last movie. This is needed more into like the, the sex romps of the 1970s, that, that those type of movies that they were doing. And of course, right enough, you can see that with, with Bond putting her in the cupboard or the closet whenever Maud Adams comes in to the, the, the hotel room, isn't it? Yeah, she just hides in the closet. Yeah. <laughs> and she waits there the whole yeah, time. Yeah, I was yeah, I don't know how you fall asleep by the way standing up. That was a question. I, I actually took that note because I don't get that cuz first of all she's like in the middle of the closet, so it's not like she can lean against the wall. So I'm like she just shuts her eyes. I'm like, "Are you planning to go to sleep because I don't think it's going to work?" <laughs> yeah, then then both she says, "Hi, almost in there." And he says, "Three hours." And she's like, "Three hours?" I felt I actually felt bad for her in that situation. <laughs> You know, she doesn't even have a cell phone, so she just stood there the whole time. If she couldn't go to sleep, that sounds awful. Yeah, it wasn't awful for Bond. Yeah. Now, Bond had a good time, obviously. Yeah, he did. He had a good time, all right. Bond always has a good time. He finds a way no matter what. Who's sailing the boat? Oh, I have no idea. That is a great question. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> Uh, so they're having a good neighbor in the cabin. Yeah, they're in... back is stuck up in the mast, and the boat's just sailing. And I assume they're sailing. on some sort of MI6 boat, right? That somebody like would put somebody in charge to like take them back. I, I assume that's where they're going, right? Or do they just get on a boat because they had access to the whole boat. Like he was floating around the cabin, and then he took Knickknack up top. So I don't know. But it was really strange because, funny enough, you saying about it was an MI6 boat. They had the, the gadgets in it with the phone and all and all came up. But I'm near certain earlier in the movie, you see Knickknack and Scarabango on that boat. I thought it was his boat. Maybe that just falls right into the golden rule of, well, Bond just killed Salamanga, so now he has access to, and control of the entire business since, you know, now that's the chain of command. Now he's in charge. He killed the boss, so now he gets his boat. <laughs> yeah, and he just, he just says to the guys that are, that, that are sailing the boat, yeah, I need a London... Yeah, you work for me now. That's basically what Christopher Lee did when he took over. He's like, you guys all work for me now. <laughs> so, so you're telling me that wasn't even Scarmangus, but that was the guy before, before that That's the only thing that makes sense, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't understand, but you're right. I guess it does look exactly like the same boat. I mean, you know, they could have tried to reuse the same set or the same boat and like tried to play it off like they're different, but you're right. They do look like the exact same boat like so we're supposed to think it is. I don't know. I'm not too yeah, sure on that. Yeah, he did. And then, because when the plane gets destroyed, he's like, he's, I forget what the one-liner he bangs out is, but he's like, it's something like that's a problem or something like that. And the fan you way. And speaking of one-liners, I have to say, one of my favorite one-liners in this movie is right at the end, where uh, when the phone goes, and that was the thing as well, how did, how did uh, uh, M know where he was? If that was Scarmangus both, how did M know <laughs> where to find him, where to phone? But maybe Bond told him that before you know we just didn't see it you know you'll get me on this boat give us a call later so he phones up and he says a student with you and he says uh she's coming now sir <laughs> and, then going, good night. and he's like good night sir <laughs> <laughs> that was really funny yeah i actually like that because he like kind of keeps him on the hook and they just can't get off of each other and he's just like all right i'm done talking to you i got stuff to do and you think that M would understand what's going on <laughs> yeah yeah well do you think you know by now like i think this is a running gag for the next decade with uh bond's 
Yeah, like that. That's M's got to understand. Speaking of which, with that scene, by the way, did you notice the phone? I, I, I mean, that was a really old phone. It had a rotary on a handheld. I, I, I've never seen that in my life before. I've seen rotary phones, but I've never seen a rotary with it on the handheld like that. That was unique. On the handheld, you know, funny you should mention. I didn't even notice that the rotary was on the handheld. I didn't even notice it. I just thought it was a handheld. I, I remember the phones that when you when you pick the. What do you call it? Receiver up? Yeah. Like the, the you said the repub is on the bottom, the bottom bit. Yeah, I've seen it where they have it like on the bottom where you know you spin it around like down there, or if it's a handheld, then you would punch it in on the handheld. But I've never seen oh, it where you would do. It yeah, but I've never seen it where you do the rotary on the handheld. That was the first oh, time I. Handheld, right? Okay, that's where that's where I thought you meant. That's where it was. Yeah, because I've seen like the punch in just on the part where you put it down. But you know what? I didn't even notice. Yeah, I, I it only stuck out to me because I had never seen anything like that in my life. I mean, it makes sense. It's 1974. I've seen plenty of, like, rotary phones, like, you know, when I go to people's houses who still, like, have them or had them when I was a kid. But I'd never yeah. seen, like, a technology like that. That was uh, definitely uh, something that I guess was around just in the 1970s. <laughs> That was probably state-of-the-art back then. Probably. Like, oh, look, it's right here on the handheld. You don't have to actually go to the other yeah. piece to do it. You could just hang out like this. So I was like, okay, yes. that makes sense. Because, you know, don't forget, I remember there's a VHS in my house uh, somewhere. Of my, my, my dad, when he got my mom her first... Uh, What's it called? Phone. Her first uh, wireless phone, where she could take it in the living room with her without a cord. Her first cordless phone. Like that was a yeah. big deal. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm kind of thinking about this phone. If the rotary's on the handle, if they say you had it sitting beside your sofa, right? So instead of actually reaching over and kind of having to do the rotary, you could just lift the handle and bring it over and go the rotary that way. Yeah. You know, maybe it was great back then. Yeah, that was like maybe that's what they're trying to. Do. I'm sure like they were doing product placement back then. That like, hey, they were promoting it for this movie. <laughs> like, I get because yeah. here, see, speaking of more stupid things, it just went into my head about technology and stuff. Why did MI six have to have their headquarters inside that ship? That and the top bread and bronzer, um, and keeping it all a mystery, and and they he didn't keep it keeping it from him that he's a cop. Uh, no, I think he does say he's a cop, but he pretend they arrest him for the murder of that guy that was shot by Scarlanga. Yeah. But just keeping it in all secret mall and push them in through the, the, the gap in the ship and, and Bond doesn't actually catch on until he's inside and sees him sitting there. I, I just was like, what's this all about? I mean, from a logic standpoint, that makes no sense. That guy could easily said, I'm taking you to M&Q, and I'm sure Bond would have been like, yeah, okay, cool, no problem then. But uh, they wanted it for some reason. I think that was more for us. I think they wanted to keep the viewer yeah. in the dark about it, like what exactly is going on. But from a logic standpoint, that makes absolutely no sense because what if he's, like, really suspicious of you and he just, like, is he, like, yeah, you said you're a cop and Bond's not going to kill another cop, but he's asking questions, like, it doesn't make sense why you would be doing this, and I feel like he would have at least grabbed him for information, but he didn't. And, okay, and it's one of those things, John, as you said, is it's done for the audience, but only works once. And it only works, and they, and that's a trope that I feel like these movies definitely like to whip out a lot, leaving us in the dark, where then logic just gets thrown out the window. When you think back on it, it, it doesn't make sense, and then at a rebatch, and I know sometimes people may say, look, you don't care to watch movies over and over again, or but, but you know, we're, we're in, we're in a, a world now where we do go back and visit old movies, and if you watch a movie again like that, you go, this doesn't make any sense, which reminds me, we're just thinking there, that could be the name of a Bond movie, yeah. this only works once. Well, you know what? I wanted to bring that up to you, actually, because that is a good idea. That is a good name for a Bond movie. I, I actually feel like the name of this Bond movie 
is just too on the nose in comparison to other Bond movies. The man with the golden gun. Like, in comparison, like, you know, you get live and let die. Like, these are not, like, you know, things that are, like, uttered through the movies. Like, the Bond movies always have these, like, cool, unique titles. It's just so weird that this one is the man with the golden gun. I always felt like it stood out in all the Bond titles. I don't know if you felt that or if you even noticed do you that. Not like, do you not like the title? No, I like the title. It's just it feels weird in comparison to other Bond titles. Like when you say Bond titles, mm-hmm. like, you know, like Quantum of mm-hmm. Soul, Skyfall, Goldeneye, and then mm-hmm. the man with the golden gun. It just stands out. And I don't know if it stands out positively. Mm-hmm. Like, it just it doesn't seem to fit in with the other Bond titles. I don't know. That just could be me, like, nitpicking. or I just always felt like it was very on the nose. Well, I actually think, I mean, it's one of those times that I grew up knowing, you know, because obviously it's about long before I was born. Well, not that long before I was born. But it was one of those times that I was always aware of. And I think the prestige of the man with the golden gun how the actual gun looked lives on longer than the actual greatness of the movie. Does that make sense? No, that makes actually a lot of sense. When I think of this movie, the, the, the image that pops in my head always right away is Christopher Lee holding the golden gun. That's the image that comes With to my that mind. With that golden gun, that, that, that's iconic. Yes. Isn't it? It is an icon. It is one of the, honestly, it might, it's probably the thing in this movie that has stood the test of time as far as everything else, because I meant to ask you, because I know you're big into the Bond scores, but about the Bond theme and the Bond score in this one, because for me, I felt like this was also very weak. I was just going to say first about the title, is that the, the only reason, that you have mentioned it, sitting here thinking about it, you probably have a point there. The only, the only reason I can think that the title, as you say, isn't in the same vein as the other case is because maybe it was Fleming's last novel. Maybe, you know, he, he was struggling to even find a tape himself. Who's to say he died? Who's to say that would have even been the final title of the book? And may, he made a chance if he hadn't have died. That's a good uh, point. So that's what I'm kind of thinking here. You know, I know what you're saying, like, Dr. No from Russia with Love, you know what I mean? But then again, we've had, we've had pigs like Goldfinger, just saying Dr. No there, which, which are the villains? You know, Dr. No and Goldfinger. Uh, but yeah, for Mercy with Love, and uh, I'm trying to think, almost for your eyes only. Um, so I understand what you mean. Uh, and it's really weird that you do, you have the tape song, right? Which throughout the whole song, I mean, it's it's called, I think the tape song is actually called The Man with the Golden Gun. It and is. As well, and the song is The Man with the Golden Gun. Man with the Golden Gun. Right? And then. <laughs> When the first CDC bomb in, and Ian says to him, uh, what do you know about Scarabaga? The first thing Moore says is, oh, the man with the golden gun. Uh, so you're kind of beat over the head with it. Yeah. The first five minutes of the movie or ten minutes of the movie from the from the theme song with the title and then Bond, that's the first thing he says. I'm near certain it's the first thing he says. As for the song, I, I do not like that song one bit. No. It grains on me. No, I, I'm like, wow, it's awful. And you play through the entire title sequence. And then just, like, the score through the movie, like, the Bond theme is played in, uh, I'm not too sure what the instrument is, but it's, like, some sort of Asian instrument, I assume, that, like, it creates the Bond theme in, like, that sound. And I just didn't think yeah. it worked. And they use that a couple times in the movie. And this, I just felt like the score actually hurt this movie, whereas in Live and Let Die, it really enhanced the movie. Well, it says, uh, I don't like the song, I do I think it feels very kind of uh, karaoke, um, very kind of Eurovision Song Contest. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard of the Eurovision Song Contest. I only found out about that because of the Will Ferrell Netflix movie that came out a few years ago. 
which is called Eurovision. Yep. <laughs> so, but I'm aware yeah, of it now. I grew up watching that on television over the years. Kind of like American Idol and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, well, we, we, had, we had Pop Idol over here. We had, um, what was the other one? The X Factor. And we, we have had all those shows over here um, as well. Yeah, but, the um, X Factor was It just big. feels so... Yeah, X Factor. I'm not sure. I think X Factor may have originated over here, and then obviously it was brought to the states with, with by Simon Cowell, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. It was uh, so Simon Cowell. Uh, uh, I think he was doing both American Idol and the X Factor, and then I think he became a producer and brought the X Factor here to the United States too. And I think they they separate right. Like now, it's not it's not a world show, or it wasn't where like they had still the original, and then they had the Americanized version. But that's I, I'm not too sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to remember, I think. It was a Resident Pop Idol. Yeah. And then he fell out with a guy I created it with, I think. And then they came back with the Axe Factor. I don't even know if the Axe Factor is still on. To be honest, I rarely watch TV. But I, I just uh, finish up on the, uh, the score, what I was going to say about the score. Yes. Um, John Barry's came back, but I feel it was very generic form. I, I do like the kind of slowed-down version of the Man with the Golden Gun as opposed to the, the song. Um, but like you were saying about the very kind of like using kind of sound and instruments that were used, it kind of does harken back a wee bit to um, You Only Live Twice, the way he's playing it with, with, with that slow down and stuff like that. Yeah, it just... I, I... I get what they were going for, and you're right. They did kind of, and they do this a lot in the Bond movies, where they like take like an instrument, and they just play the Bond theme with it. And sometimes it works better than others. I just didn't really enjoy it in this movie. And same thing like what you were saying about the score. It just it feels very like generic or very like like just like they threw it. Like maybe again that just all plays into like it was such a quick movie where they only had a year, so everything just got rushed. Where they just kind of like okay, we'll just make the score quick for the movie. Like, it doesn't need to be special, and it just doesn't feel special. Just but it does. Feel feel like a huge step back at least to me as i said it's it just feels generic to me uh for barry i mean i think i said last week that i don't think that live at that die score is better than anything barry ever done i'm gonna have to take that back actually because i would pick living that die score over this score any day of the week oh living let die has one of the best scores in any bond movie i think um you know at least so far i think it has the best bond the best score to any of them definitely the best bond theme song if not ever, it's one of the top three all time. And this is probably... Yeah, but the funny the thing is, is that... Uh, oh, yeah, it is, yeah, it is. And the funny thing is, John, as well, is that, as we'll see, as we start moving into the 80s here, because I, I am into the scores as well. Um, I love I love the scores. I love the uh, 60s and 70s and 80s scores. Periods there are, or movies there are, where John Barry can't do the scores for whatever reason. And see the guys that step in, I think the scores that they produce for their particular films are absolutely brilliant. Um, there's, uh, I think it's For Your Eyes Only is actually done by Bill Conte, who done Rocky and The Karate Kid. And I know there's a lot of fans that actually hate that score, but I think it's wonderful. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And it suits that film as well. Um, you can tell it's Bill Conte as well when you're listening to it, but it's just kind of like living that day. It just really suits it. I, I totally understand that. Like People sometimes will listen to scores and like they'll listen to them in a bubble and not realize that it fits the film. When we get to it, eventually, like a lot of people say that GoldenEye has one of the worst scores because it was done. I can't remember the composer's name, but um, have you ever seen the movie Leon the Professional? Yes, I do, yeah. It's a great film, yeah. Yeah, the score to that, it's got a, like, a lot of like bells and stuff in it. It's a very similar score to Goldeneye. James? So he did both of them, and they sound very similar. And I think it fits Goldeneye 
perfectly, but a lot of people, they don't like that score at all. But I think that they're not realizing it fits Goldeneye, and I think that's the point. People sometimes kind of miss that a score is supposed to fit the movie. If you're listening to it separately, it might yeah. not work as well. Yeah, ex- exactly. So Eric Serra is the guy's name who is a French comedian. He's a frequent collaborator with Luc Besson, who did, you know... The Fifth Element. Oh, right, okay. So that's why. But yeah, he did the GoldenEye score, and I believe that's the only time he ever did a score. Uh, for Bond? Yeah. Yeah, and I really yeah. I really love the GoldenEye score, but I know a lot of people, um, when I see a lot of rankings of the Bond scores, like that one will be like near the bottom, too. Like A lot of people agree that like, GoldenEye is great, but they usually knock the score, but I love the score to that movie. Yeah, I, I don't know why. I thought it was the guy that done the score, doing the scores for a lot of like the, um, the later Brosnan movies. I've heard of his name, and he done some of the create movies as well. I thought he done Golden Eye. That's why I thought it was David. Somebody I can't remember his name. Yeah, I um, think he was one and done. <laughs> this guy. I think that was it for him. Yeah, because I think yeah. you're right. I think they have the same composer for the other three Bronston movies and then you're right. I think they did some of the uh, uh, Craig ones after. Well, I mean, it just seemed to me that Barry was the staple to do Bond movies. But for whatever reason, I mean, you would take a movies, maybe, maybe a composer's book. You know what I mean? It's like John Williams doing Steven Spielberg movies. Sometimes he, there's a handful of his movies he couldn't do, you know, yeah. or maybe it was a, a case of um, the subject matter, the, the director then thinks, well, maybe, you know, we'll have to change the, the, the composer for this because we need somebody to do, like, I think it was The Color Purple or something, but I, I can't remember, but but it's like, it's like when Barry was the stable of doing the Bond movies, but when they couldn't get him, they had to get, like, a stand, as I say, a stand, and somebody else to do the music, and I think that the people that got to do the stand, the music, as you said about Bond, and I, done wonderful jobs. Yeah, I think, like, you know, when they do that, like, John Williams, um, he didn't get to do Rogue One, a Star Wars story. Like he was over, like like you said, he was like overbooked, so he couldn't do it. So they got somebody else to do that one, and it's a good score. The only thing is, is sometimes when they have things like that happen, they try to like mimic or copy the other person's score. So like that score still sounds like John Williams did it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Even though he didn't, it's like he's like trying to copy his work, like to have it still fit in. But I like it when, like, the composers go in there and they try and do their own style. Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, I'm not a composer, and I think what the, the, the composers do music for movies, it's outstanding what they can do. They're really, really gifted. But I, I think a composer has to kind of watch the movie and kind of, like, get a flavor for what it's about and how it feels. And I say we've talked about some Bond movies being a wee bit more kind of, like, darker than others or a wee bit more grittier than others or a wee bit more serious than others. So we, you can't just win it or just throw in a, um, a generic score for the, the what's on the screen. One of my favorite scores is Batman score. You're a big Batman 89 fan yourself. And One of my favorite score scores ever. Batman is like my second favorite score. He says he actually visited the set in London and would use the board at night time when it was dark and just look up into the skies. And he was just kind of like inspired by that to write that kind of score for that movie, which has a lot of mood and stuff about it. I think that's my favorite score ever. That or the Brad Fidel Terminator score are my two favorites. I listen to the Batman score all the time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's one of the rare ones where, like, you bought the Batman score from Danny Elfman and you bought the Prince album. <laughs> like, they were just double dipping back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I've got both of them as well. I've actually got the expanded version as well of the Batman 89 score. It's been my favorite score since I was a teenager when I first listened, listened to it. 
I love that score so much. Uh, it's just perfect, and it fits that world so. Every, I mean, listen, we're gonna have to one day do a whole podcast just on Batman '89 because we both love it so much. And this, yep. if I go on a rant about Batman '89 right now, I'll just tell you every single thing about it I love, which will be from the opening credits till the very end. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent, I love the because I have a lot to say about it as well. It's one of my favorite films, yeah. and um, it's agent. It's just perfect. to me. It's it's not a perfect movie. But there's a lot of things about it that that just fit it perfectly. Just in a nutshell, like the whole kind of uh, aesthetics of it, and the production design, the mood, the feel of it, you know, the score, as you say, just fits that whole thing perfectly. The costumes, the performances, everything just works so well. And it's not a perfect film. There's no. got a lot of there's a lot of problems. There's a big difference between favorite film and the best film. Like I always like trying to like you know certain movies mean a lot more to like you as a person than like it might to other people. But like we could all agree that like movies like The Godfather are like the best made movies. Like yeah. they they they're flawless in in their execution. But you want to put a gun to my head and say what do you want to watch tonight? The Godfather or Batman? I'm choosing Batman because that movie is just one of the most rewatchable movies ever. You can rewatch that. I can rewatch that movie every single day. I've re- I've, that's the only movie I think by the time I die, I might end up watching it like over a thousand times because I've seen it just so much since I was so young. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'd be the same. Now I kind of try and make it one of those uh, annual movies. I watch around um, October time, November time because of the mood of it. Um, I try and give it a, a watch once a year. It's so you choose to watch. You know it's weird. For some reason, I've always associated Batman '89 with the summer. I don't know why. I just I've watched. I mean, I've read so much movies, videos. I've watched so much videos and read so much about it being like this huge, the the biggest summer blockbuster ever about Batman Fever that I always kind of for some reason yeah. associate it with July. Whereas Batman Returns is a Christmas movie. Yeah, no, I actually um, look. I, I agree. We understand what you're saying. And I remember it did come out in the summer, and I remember when it was released in the summer of 89. But um, I, I was only very young at the time. I was only seven, eight years of age, turning eight, seven, turning eight. It was just, it was the first ever VHS that I ever, ever owned. I watched it a load of times then. I didn't watch it for a long time. And I remember one night sitting in the house, and I was flicking channels. And I, I flicked it over, and it was, it was on. It was the bit with the Batmobile, or not Batmobile, sorry, the Batwing was coming down taking the Joker's brooms away and it flew off into the, the night sky you know when it flies off in the night sky yep. and you see those blues and those and the blacks and the moon yep. and I had to go outside for some reason this must have been around autumn 10 or whatever it was I had to go outside for some reason so yeah, it was only I was about 14, 15 and 10 and see when I opened the front door I was outside to get something I looked up into the sky and it was the exact same sky I was seeing on the television see that that, see, that makes perfect so sense it, it felt as if I just walked into that world it was really weird and I came back in, I sat down and I watched the rest of the movie, I watched the last 20 minutes of it, and I went to myself, Jesus, I forgot that I good that movie is, that's, that's, that's really good. So I had it on BHS from when it was like nine or whatever, I hadn't watched it in a few years, and I went back and then I watched it again, and then from that point onwards, 14, whatever it was, 15, and it just became one of my favourite movies again, because it was my favourite movie when I was a kid anyway, or one of my favourites, and it became a, a favourite of mine again. And um, that's when I actually I bought the soundtrack, and um, I bought the graphic novel. I read the graphic novel. I started reading Batman comics and getting into Batman comics more and things like that. So um, I've always then associated it with more of a kind of, you know, later in the year type of movie. Um, where it's a wee bit colder, I'd say. There's no leaves in the trees and things like that. 
I mean, that does make perfect sense. Now I do know why you associated with the fall a lot more. And I mean, there are shots. Like, one of the best shots in that movie is when the Batmobile's driving and all the dead leaves are on the ground and they're flowing in the air right before he hits the Batcave. So yeah. it does make... But for you, like, like you said, like, to go outside with the crisp air, like, it does make more... I completely understand now why you associated with the fall. That does... Or autumn. That makes a lot more sense. Yeah. I have movies like that that shouldn't make sense, like, when I watch them throughout the year, but, like, and you, but you personally associate it with, like, something, you know, a memory or something like that. So I, I totally get that. Uh, and, and then later on, when I, when I actually found out more about the making of Batman and stuff, it was actually filmed in the fall, in uh, the winter of 1988, early 89. And that backlot, you know, it was outside. You know, obviously, uh, some of the scenes were filmed inside, like the Comic Cathedral was on a certain stage and things like that. But that was actually filmed outside. And funny enough, you mentioned it about the scene with the Batmobile, which is one of my favourite scenes in that movie, where it's going through the forest and the leaves are ripped up and Danny Alphonse's music is absolutely outstanding. The Batmobile's hammering down the road. See that where they filmed that? I'm near certain that they filmed scenes from Goldfinger in that same forest. That would be fascinating if they did that. You know, it's so funny. Like, the more movies you watch, you start to pick up on locations where they film a lot of stuff. Me and Matt yeah. both just noticed this week when we were watching uh, Command. He was watching Commando. He's like, "Did they film that at the same mall as Terminator 2? I'm like, "I'm not sure." And then I looked it up, and sure enough, it's the same mall. And I was oh, like, is it? "Yeah." And I was like, "Wow!" So it's like, so you, you start to pick up, like, I guess a lot of stuff. Like, I guess the studios just reuse locations like throughout the world. Like um, John Hughes movies, a lot of them are filmed like those houses in Chicago, like Home Alone and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. They're next to each yeah. other because the studio. I don't remember what studio did those movies they own those houses <laughs> so that's why they film at those houses <laughs> do you know funny enough, i thought you were going to say about commando <laughs> um was the ending at the mansion oh at the, on the island it's on the it's on the i suppose the, the island <laughs> apparently that's in la and it's the same house that they used at the end of barry hills cup oh my god you know what I think you're right because I recognize the staircase that they at the, the final shootout starts out in, and that's yeah, the same the staircase. And then they have the balcony and all, and all the plants and all around. Yeah, I. Oh my God, you're right. I thinking of yeah, no, that is the same place. <laughs> yeah, it's the same. Yeah. I guess they probably have these houses like or like any set like set up like ready for the cameras and everything like you know they're just a controlled environment that they just have access to like yeah that then I've never noticed that that makes perfect sense but yeah they must do that the more movies you watch you start to pick up on these locations that they just reuse over and over exactly and, and I would imagine this is what I would imagine that's a that's a mansion that's a rich person that owns that house so they're paying him to use that house for whatever to fill him in for two or three days or a week and he's probably the person that owns that probably is there all the time, and they know they can go to him and say to him, can we rent your house to fill him? And he said, yeah, no bother, and then he's getting paid for it. Yeah, that's what makes a good living on it. The best, I mean, I guess it's kind of sad, but like a lot of times in movies and TV shows, like they just shoot the exterior of the house, then the interiors are sets, and then the people who live at the actual houses like, like kind of get like harassed. <laughs> like I always hear about the Breaking Bad house, like the people who live there. Um, they're always like having yeah. people come take pictures and stuff like that, but like you know, not realizing that the interior is not an actual house; it's a set. <laughs> it's just a set, and funny you should say, like the Goonies house. Yeah, that's like, a very. The woman that lived there was getting like tortured for years. She actually put a sign up saying, "You know, no trespassing," but people were coming up and breaking bits off the house and taking it home and going, "Oh, I've got a bit of the Goonies house." And I see made a story about a couple a couple of years ago about the house was up for sale. A fella about our age, maybe a little older than me. 
he actually bought it. About, I think it sold for something like $1.5 million. Damn. The inside has been totally remodeled. I mean, it looks nothing like it does in the movie anymore on the inside. But the outside, it looks exactly, oh, almost exactly. They don't have like the, the, the wee contraption to open the door and stuff. Obviously, they don't have that. But the funny thing is, is that see the house next door? That was up for sale and it was only, I say only, but it was about $500,000. <laughs> it just shows you the difference in value because yeah. that was in a famous movie. I wish I got that lucky. They can come shoot at my house if they want, whenever they want. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I, I, I see the guy that bought the Goonies house. He's, he's, the reason he bought it is he says, I'm a, I'm a lifelong fan. I love the movie. He says, and I'm going to let fans come and see the house and do tours around the house. So he's already thinking that. Whereas the woman that owned it before, she was like, I don't want anybody here. I don't make people come up and take photos of the house. Well, at least she was smart enough to finally sell it, because that's the thing. Like, when you get a house like that that's featured in movies, it's just smart enough to just sell it to people who are fans of the movie, because, like, it's just going to end up causing you more problems than not, because people don't realize, like, the average person doesn't realize that a regular person's no. living there. They just assume, you know, they see a movie, and that's just what their mind goes to, and they're going to always try and take pictures. You can't stop that. It's just more of, like, a fight for you. You're better off just... Cut your losses, and it looks like her, you know, made an extra million dollars, it sounds like. So, you know, it worked out for her in the yeah. end, and it worked out for the guy. He gets a house, like, you know, as a fan. It works out better for him, yeah, too. exactly. Do you want to, before we get out of here, you want to rank these? Yeah, do you want to go first, or should I Should I go first? <laughs> Excuse me. Um, You can go first. Yeah, I'll let you go. I've been pulling up my list right now. Okay. I, I'm, I'm going to work from number one to number nine this time. Okay. As you know, number one's from Russian Love. Yep. Number two is Goldfinger. Okay. Number three is Thunderball. Number four is Little Not Die. Number five is Doctor No. Number six is Automatic Secret Service. Number seven is You Need It Twice. And I'm going to say here, I, I really struggle with this. You know, what's going to be number eight and what's going to be number nine? I really struggle with this. And I'm going to put number eight, Diamonds Are Forever. And number nine is The Man With The Golden Gun. Damn. I'll, I'll briefly just tell you why I had to do that, John. I mean, I, I wrote down my notes here. I've already said about it. I just feel as if to try to stretch this out, there was a lot of filler in there, which was just nonsense. It wasn't even, didn't make any sense. But the reason I put it below Damon's Are Forever, and I am not a fan of Damon's Are Forever at all, I just feel as if Damon's Are Forever was better paced. It had better villains, better set pieces. It had a better score and a better song. And, and that is why, because neither of them sitting down here and kind of analyzing these and that's the reason why I had to put the man with the golden gun below David forever. No, I, I perfectly, I, I think that's perfectly acceptable. I agree with you pretty much. So actually, before we dive into that, I wanted to let you guys know, or let you know, uh, my number one so far is Live and Let Die. Number two is Goldfinger. Okay. Number three, uh -huh. Thunderball, just like you. Number four, From Russia yeah. with Love. Number mm -hmm. five, Honor Majesty's Secret Service. Number six mm -hmm. is Dr. No. Number seven is Diamonds Are Forever, so a little higher than you. Number eight is You Only okay. Live Twice. And then at dead last, at number nine so far, The Man with the Golden Gun. So I had to put that last two. Now, I would say I enjoyed watching this movie more than I enjoyed watching movies like, say, Diamonds Are Forever or even Diamond or even Doctor No. But yeah. 
it's not as well made. There are just like the score is worse. It's the worst I think so far. Uh, this leaning into the silliness then the comedy, they just went too far. This, the, I mean, putting the sound effect over that car, I I cannot move past like this. Like that, it becomes a screwball comedy in that sense. And this is a Bond movie. Like, yeah, did I laugh out loud? Absolutely. Like I said, I wasn't bored watching this movie, but it's just some of the decisions are just too ridiculous to not yeah. put it last unfortunately exactly and that's how i feel about it i i, I just feel as if it's not a badly made movie as i said i mean the effects are good you know the acting's good the only thing as i say it's dubious is that about I, I don't like the song at all i thought the score was very generic and i think everybody done a good job it's as you say it's just the decisions that they've made it's in this movie going towards that direction of making it very kind of uh, comedic is the issue that I have with it and that's part of the reason why I just was like when I thought it over and I, th- and I struggled I knew it would be down around it it would be either above diamonds or below diamonds and when I thought about it today excuse <coughs> me today and I thought about diamonds has these things better than this movie that's why I had to put it below it. I 100% agree like you said it's not like there are certain aspects the fight scenes like when he's fighting the hands on combat just like live and let die like they obviously got better technology so it looks better a lot of stuff looks better than the older Bond movies it's just the decisions were just not smart I think that they end up pulling back on a lot of the stuff and like we they take three years off before we get to the next movie which i think helps yeah. the series overall so that's a positive i think like a well, thing that hurt this movie the most and i think we kind of came to it is they just you can't do it like they did in the 60s where you have to rush a movie out one year later and it doesn't feel like you got all your ducks in a row it just feels very rushed and i think that's probably what hurt it leading that and then leaning just too much into the comedy yeah exactly i, I agree yeah i think that's Possibly, but but wrong with this film, or not possibly, it probably is what we're wrong with this film. That's how we're going to rank them this week, and which one's next, David, actually? So we've got The Spy Who Loves Me, Love Me, is next. All right. Um, now, this next one, as far as I'm aware, is considered uh, one of the best in the franchise, and there's a lot of people considered to be Ro- Roger Moore's best Bond film. I'll give it another watch, and I'll see if... I think it's better than Living That Die this time. Right, well, maybe it will be. Uh, hopefully you enjoy it this time. I'm hoping to uh, at least enjoy it more than I enjoyed this movie. I'm sure I will. <laughs> I, I, I do. I, I think you'll enjoy Spy Loves Me more than uh, The Mom of the Golden Gun. I, I, out of the Moore Bond films, I, I, I knew going into it that this was going to be fairly low in the, in the Moore Bond films. It could be his worst for me. I don't know. We'll just come up to see how it pans out. Yeah, we will. At least, I, at least I can say that the performances were at least decent. So, you know, I, I don't feel like I wasted my time. I, You know, it's still like something you can watch. This definitely feels like one of the Bond movies you watch in a marathon and you just forget about it. Do you know, funny enough, that crossed my mind earlier when I was talking about the, some of the later Bond movies, which then um, aren't well received and a lot of fans don't make, make them or a lot of people don't make them. I actually think that people sat down and watched uh, seven more Bond films and watched them um, objectively that this would be fairly low even below some of them other ones. I think the reason it's not is because it is a second one and it is that blonde that it's kind of forgot about. It's just, it feels like, because when I watched these movies, the Roger Moore ones, a lot of, the way I got into Bond is uh over here in the u.s uh they used to play a marathon every year so especially on thanksgiving and uh, you know they play them throughout the years but thanksgiving it was an all-day thing so that's how i got into james bond to begin with was watching them like that but like when you would turn them on it was usually a random bond movie this feels like the kind of bond movie that i would have turned on halfway through watched it 
probably like laughed about it but forgot about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a forgettable Bond movie. It really is. And as we said earlier on, John, it, what you remember is the Haiti because it is a standout kind of Haiti. And you remember Christopher Lee and you remember the, the Golden Gun. Yep. And that's basically it. Yep, you realize that that's the only thing you're going to take away from this movie ever unless, you know, somebody compiles a list of, like, the worst uh, choices or effects in movies and decides to put the car scene in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and I don't think, like, if we lose the Marvel Golden Gun come on the radio next week, I don't think there'll be too many people keeping it on. They might switch the station on the radio. I'm changing the station if the man with the Golden Gun comes on next week. Although <laughs> <laughs> it did like the wee version that was played at the end. Yeah, it would, that was better than the opening credits version for sure. This <laughs> They should have had it at the start. Yeah, they should have done that. It would have been a better choice than the opening because, yeah, man, the opening credits, those were those were definitely, the they were the they were brutal. They were, they were tough to get <laughs> But uh, anyway, guys, thank you so much for joining me and David here on another one of our 007 reviews. So make sure you watch uh, the next one coming up, which again is uh, why am I drawing a blank? I don't know why I can't say it. You tell him um, again what the next one is. The spy who loved me. The spy who loved me. I want to keep saying the spy who shagged me because obviously, and I know that's wrong. Well, that's yeah, I know that's it's the same thing. No, it's the same thing. They swap out that one word, but that one word is just throwing me for a loop. I don't know why. It's my brain. <laughs> so that's going to be the next one. So if you're following along with us, make sure you watch that one before our next review. And we will be seeing you guys next time. <laughs>